0: So now here we go for our first panelist, which is Mr. Walton Brown, Jr. His book is Bermuda and the Struggle for Reform, Race, Politics, and Ideology, 1944-1998. Mr. Brown is a Member of Parliament, Pembroke Central, and the Shadow Minister for Immigration and External Affairs. He's a radio host and journalist and former chairman of the Bermuda College Board of Governors. His book is a study of the quest for social reform in Bermuda. It starts with the Bermuda Workers' Association, the first organization, combining economic, social, and political struggles, and which sought to transform Bermuda for the betterment of its people. It ends with the 1998 election of the Progressive Labour Party, the party formed in 1963, to carry on with the agenda for social and political reform. His book reveals a number of themes. The insertion of race into the fabric of modern Bermuda, the successful use of ideology by the dominant elite to hold on to power, and the limited role played by the formal political process in affecting change. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Virginia. Good evening, everyone. I'm actually going to read from the first chapter,
1: and the section is called "A Racially Structured Capitalism." Clearly, the point of departure for comprehending the relations between blacks and whites. Is the slave era. Bermuda slave lords have very close contact with their slaves. They lived in the same area. They often worked alongside together. Unlike slave owners in Ireland's plantations slave slave economies. Out of this, Bermuda developed a highly paternalistic slave society that will continue to have some resonance in the post-slave era. American historian Eugene Genovese's magnum locus on slavery in the United States, Royal Jordan Road, offers us some insights, some very important insights, into the meaning of paternalism. Genovese begins by arguing that a particular form of paternalism developed in the Old South, one characterized most importantly by the centrality of class relations with racism as an important undercurrent. undercurrent. Paternalism, furthermore, has little to do with kindheartedness or benevolence. I quote from Genovese. Paternalism grew out of the necessity to discipline and morally justify a system of exploitation. It did encourage kindness and affection, but it simultaneously encouraged cruelty and hatred. The racial distinction between master and slave heightens the tension already inherent in an unjust social order. In the reading context, slavery can be seen primarily as an economic system designed to better exploit those workers who were enslaved. Paternalism, matched with, with racism, was the ideological apparatus that was implemented to justify the degradation of people of African descent. The effect that this system of paternalism had on blacks was considerable and long-lasting. Paternalism inhibited the creation of unity among the enslaved, either as blacks or as workers, because wherever paternalism exists, it undermines solidarity among the oppressed by linking them as individuals to their oppressors. This recognition of a powerful, a structure therefore allows us to comprehend why so many of the slave conspiracies and the planned escapes came to nothing. Primarily because one or more slaves informed their masters. And so despite the errors of cultural autonomy that slaves had managed to create for themselves in religion, in song, in dance and in stories, the historical baggage that's why paternalism has prevented slaves and the three generations after them from fully utilizing what individual strength they have generated. The intersection of paternalism with racism worked a catastrophe because it transformed elements of personal dependency into collective weakness. This collective weakness of blacks and workers, meant the white ruling elite had almost a free hand in reorganizing society and emancipation to guarantee continued hegemony of the old dominant elite. On the political front, this was achieved by legislation designed to deny blacks the vote and to prevent them from being elected to Parliament. Legislation came in the form of increasing the land qualification for voting. After August 1, 1834, to vote for a member of parliament, one had to earn property with a value assessed at no less than £100 instead of £40, as was previously the case. To run as a member of parliament, one had to earn property valued at £400 instead of £200. The ruling class justified this by claiming that most blacks lack sufficient education. Were not suited for civic responsibility. And that to enfranchise them immediately would only create social disruption. The most appropriate course to take, they argued, was to gradually grow blacks until they had reached an acceptable level of political maturity. Only then could they be entrusted with the vote. The colonial office undersecretary, James Stevens, explained, it seems to me that this is a grievance which time will redress, and that there may be a more general convenience and safety in allowance for the actual supremacy of the whites for a while, to the legal extinction of it, and to depart from it by degrees, rather than to be same as by a more abrupt method. Allowing white supremacy for a while Will continue, unab- will continue unabated well right into the second half of the next century. Only then would some density be made to the armor of the white elite rule. The political exclusion of blacks was supplemented by an equally conscious attempt to limit their influence through immigration and population policies. Once emancipation was imminent, white Burmese gathered out that blacks should leave the island upon receiving their freedom. In a typical letter to the local daily, in a typical letter to the local deity, one writer recommended that blacks obtain a loan from the British government so that they might emigrate to Africa or elsewhere in the British Empire. So that, and I quote, I mean, because, and I quote, there was little or no room for them here to exercise their talent and industry. When it became clear that blacks were not leaving, a bill was tabled to Parliament in 1842, and I quote, to encourage emigrants coming to these islands from the United Kingdom. With this legislation, Bermuda's rulers had helped to shift the racial balance in favor of whites by persuading English men and women to settle in Bermuda." Efforts to limit the size of the black population are a recurring characteristic of racially structured community. When the state and local capitalists were forced to resort to labor from the West Indies during the construction of the dry ducks, at the turn of the 20th century, and during the interwar period, the intention was always to persuade them to leave upon completion of their work, while, the, while whites were always encouraged to stay. During debates in the House of Assembly in 1921, for example, the sentiment among most politicians was that West Indians were generally undesirable. This elite group of almost all white men thought that some were good workers, that is to say, and I quote, knew their places in the home and were willing to do good, honest work. But the vast majority were simply, and I quote, troublemakers. They therefore continued to restrict West Indian immigration. In a Bermudaized version of the British colonial practice of divide and rule, Bermuda's ruling class engaged in a carefully orchestrated campaign to run a rift between Black Canadians and Black West Indians. Much of this stems from the West Indian labor activity during the 1920s. The longshoremen, many of whom were West Indian, engaged in repeated struggles. The economic elite of the Great Recession, presenting the latter with the first inklings of organized resistance. One consequence was the state refusing to allow further West Indians into the island. Another was to look for labor saving technology. One company actually advertised um, their products by saying, Good labor is scarce, but good tools are not. in order, to, in order to separate the comparatively docile breeding labor force from the resting in the, the former were told they were better than the hotheads and rabble rouses from the island. That they showed decorum and patience, and would get further ahead by not stirring up trouble. Fabulous workers listened, they listened attentively. attentively. But the continued success of this paternalism would further entrench black workers' immobilization. For another 20 years. (coughs) Workers' class and racial consciousness, which challenged elite rule, would only become politically salient in 1944 with the formation of the Bermuda Workers' Association, led no no less by a Trinidadian born brother. 100 years after emancipation, the Blacks had made no significant strides toward equality. Constrained as they were by the racism that permeated civil society. Working in government departments such as the post office, still blacks, and blacks. Many retail stores hired only whites. There were separate schools for blacks and whites. Blacks were forced to sit at the back end in church and especially designated roads <coughs> in the center. A number of restaurants refused to serve blacks, and hotels discriminated against blacks and Jews. By asking travel agents to submit photographs and identify them with the name of the flow. By 1944, when workers first began to acquire consciousness of themselves as a class and went on to develop collective objectives, race consciousness had become an inextricable component of the more general class consciousness.